This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. With thanks to the Carlo and Kilkenny Local Enterprise Offices for business, financial supports and mentoring services. For more information, see localenterprise.ie. Hello, good evening and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell with you until 7 o'clock this evening. It's good to be back with you after a few weeks away. I'd like to thank Deirdre Drummy and Colin Ahern for doing such a great job in keeping the bottom line ticking over for the last month. This evening on the programme, it's a golden age for knife making, something which I didn't know much about until earlier today uh, when Patrick Joseph Brennan opened his bespoke knife knife gallery and showroom in the Castle Yard in Kilkenny City. I went along to the launch and later you'll have an opportunity to hear Patrick's inspiring story, learn about a knife called the Texas Toothpick and hear more about the fascinating world of knife making. We'll be talking to a Carlo man who started his career as an electrician one week after leaving school aged 17 and who during the week scooped the top award at the Carlo Digital Awards for his new Invention, which he's got patented and which he thinks is going to make a big difference around the world. And we'll hear what over 6,000 people have been saying about health and well-being in the workplace and what lessons are for people who manage businesses. And we'll hopefully have some time to bring you a few bits of pieces of news and information about events of interest to people in business. But first, joining me on the line is an old friend of the programme, economist Jim Power. How are you, Jim, this evening? John, good evening. How are you doing? Very good. You've been busy. There's a lot going on on the economic front, uh, banking difficulties, inflation, interest rates and so on. I've been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, take me through it. What's the story with the banks? Uh, yeah, it's been quite extraordinary, John. Uh, just as, you know, this time last year we were starting to deal with the beginnings of the Ukraine invasion and now we're, you know, we've been cast into this problem with the global banking system. Um, to date, we've seen three banks in the United States shut down and we've seen one in Europe. And if you, and this has happened over the last two or three weeks, and I'll, I'll take the example of um, Silicon Valley Bank, that's a mid-sized bank in the United States based in Silicon Valley, uh, which was set up originally to deal with the technology sector, particularly providing lending facilities to uh, startup technology companies. Um, about two years ago, it took the decision to invest over half its depositors' money in long-term government bonds in the United States. And the problem is that in the last 12 months, interest rates in the States have gone from 0 to 5%. That has affected the value of those bonds, okay? Mm. That's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, um, it had 188 billion in deposits, okay. And in one day, 46 billion of those deposits left the bank. Wow. And the following day, there was 100 billion scheduled to go. And that was the day that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation stepped in and shut down the bank. Mm. And the reason why the deposits were flowing was because a venture capitalist, Peter Thiel, oh. uh, he's a global venture capitalist, he issued advice to his client companies that they should take their deposits out of Silicon Valley Bank, that it was in a bit of trouble. And one of the problems is that in the United States, up to $250,000 is insured. Mm. So those deposits are secure. But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, because of the nature of the deposits it had, 
Um, 93% of them were not insured because they were all well over 250,000. So that there was this basic loss, loss of confidence and con- banking is a confidence game. Yeah. You know, depositors have to be confident that the bank they're placing their money with is secure. So Peter so, Thiel literally moved the market by him probably sending out an email saying that he made the, the critical call. He did. He did indeed. And, and actually, you know, technically he was correct. It was a bank in difficulty. The deposits weren't insured. Um, so there was a problem. And, and one of the reasons why there was a problem, and Thiel would have been very aware of this as well, is because in 2018, Donald Trump significantly relaxed the supervision of smaller banks. Yeah. That would have included Silicon Valley Bank. And there is a clip doing the rounds on YouTube and social media of the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, who was the CEO up to three weeks ago. Um, he was testifying before a congressional committee arguing for the relaxation of the supervision of smaller banks. That's exactly what Trump did. So the fact that this bank was allowed to invest over half its depositors' money in one asset government bonds was reckless in the extreme. And will heads roll for that, Jim, do you think? Well, the bank is gone. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been bought and the CEO is gone. So yeah, I mean, heads, heads will roll in the sense that that bank no longer exists. It's been taken over. And I suspect, uh, first citizens that bought it will, you know, replace all of the staff, well, all of the senior staff. But, and then there was a, a bank, Signature Bank in New York, which is uh, slightly different, but a similar story. And then in Switzerland, we had Credit Suisse second largest bank in Switzerland. Um, it got into serious trouble when these global banking uncertainty and confidence started to suffer. And um, Credit Suisse Bank for 10 years has been shrouded in scandal after scandal. It's lost a fortune on various investment funds and fraudulent stuff. So what I'm saying here is that we've seen four banks go, okay? And in each case, you could say, well, there were unique reasons why this bank got into trouble, mm. okay? So, and that, and that does tend to give solace to some people who believe that these are unique problems. But of course, what we don't know is just how many other banks there are out there with similarly unique problems. Um, and, that, and the fear, as I said, conf- banking is a confidence game. And once confidence starts to go, uh, you have a problem. We saw last Friday, for example, Deutsche Bank in Germany saw a sharp fall in its share price for no apparent reason. I mean, Deutsche Bank wasn't in the past, but it looks like a reasonably well-managed bank at this stage. And regulation in Europe has been better than in the United States. Uh, but yet it got attacked and the German Chancellor, um, Olaf Scholz, had to come out and make some reassuring statements about Germany's mm. biggest bank. So, uh, you know, and this is the problem with these sorts of crises. It's called contagion. It just spreads like wildfire. And that's why, and, and this isn't me just, this is not just my interpretation. Uh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury in the United States, that's the equivalent of our Department of Finance, they stepped in and they put massive support in place to support those banks that were in difficulty and also generally to provide money to the whole banking system to keep it stable. And likewise in Europe, you know, significant commitments have been made. So authorities are worried that this could evolve into a bigger problem and they stand ready to do whatever it takes to prevent that from happening because the one thing they do not want is a repeat of what we saw back in 2008-9. 
Yeah, now you mentioned that word uh, confidence and also conta- contagion and the, the measures that the central banks and so on are taking. Are you confident that that's enough and that they've got it under control? Uh, no, I wouldn't say they have it under control. I mean, as far as the markets are concerned this week, it's relaxed again. There's a sense that it is under control, but that could quickly be blown out of the water if we got another uh, Silicon Valley bank arising somewhere. Mm. So I, I, I think there's massive, massive official intervention here to prevent this from escalating into something more serious. But I, I, I will just watch this space. I wouldn't just wouldn't be confident at this juncture uh, that we've seen the end of this. So I suppose we could add another C word in. We have to be careful of complacency. Exactly, John. And and you see, one of the problems is when you see interest rates in the United States go from zero to five percent in 12 months, in Europe from zero to three and a half percent. When you see that sort of dramatic interest rate increase in such a short space of time, it does create problems. And um, the nature of those problems only becoming apparent now. So global banking, I don't believe it's anywhere near where it was back in 2008, 2009. Uh, but there's a lot of nervousness around it and complacency certainly um, would be ill-advised at this juncture. In, in, this, in the case of the Irish banks, I mean, basically, we now have two and a half banks in this country, AIB, Bank of Ireland, Permanent TSB, um, because a lot of the other players have now exited the market. Uh, but those banks, because, you know, they haven't been lending aggressively over the last decade, uh, the, the European Central Bank has imposed very heavy capital requirements on the Irish banks because of what happened in 2008, 2009, heavier than in other countries. And that's one of the reasons why Irish mortgage rates are higher than in most of the rest of the euro area. Mm. But that, that, those heavy capital requirements, the regulation of the Irish banks, um, and, and the fact that the banks were not allowed lend excessively like they did in the run up 2008, 2009, would suggest that the Irish banks are okay. There's there's no reason why depositors in Irish banks should be remotely concerned at the moment. Good to hear. Now, uh, Silicon Valley Bank was at the the origin of this uh, wave, I suppose. There was a time Silicon Valley, uh, anything with the name attached, could do no wrong. The shine has gone off the tech sector a bit, isn't it? Between banks and their laying off staff by the new time. Yeah, that, that's been the other evolving story in the last 12 months, really, and it has escalated since about November. Um, basically, what has happened is that during the two years of COVID, we saw massive growth in online business and technology, Zoom, all of that stuff. And the t- big technology companies hired aggressively. And suddenly, when COVID ended, when life started to return to normal, um, and then when the economy started to sh- slow down in the last 12 months, the global economy because of rising interest rates, the Ukraine war, etc., um, they've suddenly discovered, actually, we have overhired, and they are now starting to, I hate using this term when you're talking about people losing their jobs, but they are now in the process of right-sizing. Right. Okay, And we've seen, I, I, I would estimate about 2,600 technology jobs being affected in this country. But what I'm picking up is that a lot of those that are being let go by the big tech companies are being picked up by smaller companies in other sectors of the economy who are not able to compete with the big companies for staff over the last couple of years. Yeah, because so the staff thing is a whole other complex kind of environment, isn't it? Um, you know, not people are finding it hard to get staff in many areas too. Yeah, well, they are. And this is the point in the technology area. A lot of the staff being let go are being 
picked up by other companies in different sectors like insurance companies, banks, etc., mm. who found it difficult to hire technology people. But the other, the other point, and this is a global story at the moment, you know, despite everything that has happened in the last 12 months with inflation, rising interest rates, um, and so on, um, unemployment virtually everywhere is incredibly low at the moment. We have a 4.3% unemployment rate in Ireland. We have 2.57 million people working, which is by far the highest level ever. And um, one of the big challenges for many businesses is the recruitment and retention of staff. And in fact, we're seeing lots of in the hospitality sector particularly, lots of businesses either shutting down because of staffing issues or actually cutting down on the number of days a week they're open. Yeah. Many opening now, maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, finally and briefly, Jim, uh, we heard you on the news talking about inflation figures out today. Uh, what's your view on inflation? Well, in inflation, according to the flash estimate today, and we'll get the detail in the next week or so, but it has fallen to 7% from 8.1% in February. This is the European standardized measure, okay? A little bit different than the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. But um, that's the one. That you, this is the one the European Central Bank looks at. It's fallen back to 7%, which is good, the lowest level since March 22. But I would stress that, a lot of this is due to the fact that energy costs have fallen sharply. You know, we've seen petrol diesel prices fall. We've seen home heating oil, um, a lot of the energy-related stuff that spiraled this time last year as the Ukraine war started. But then if you look at food price inflation continues to pick up, up by 1.1% in the month of March alone. On an annual basis, food prices are now 13.3% higher than a year ago. Mortgage costs because of the European Central Bank increasing interest rates, this feeds into inflation as well. Um, they're up about 35% because of European Central Bank mortgage rate increases. And the other area then is private rents are growing at an annual rate of 12, 13%. So, and then you also see a lot of service prices are under upward pressure as well. Mm. So, and, and, and what I've described in Ireland is being mirrored across Europe at the moment. It is not unique to Ireland. So, and that's what worries the European Central Bank. There are parts of the inflation system that are still under significant pressure. And that's why the European Central Bank is still increasing. And based on what the chief economist in the European Central Bank, Philip Lane, said in the last couple of days, um, it is likely that the European Central Bank will deliver at least another half percent interest rate increase, despite the problems in the global banking system. Yeah, so beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, exactly. Jim, uh, thanks very much for joining us. I wish we had more time, but always good to hear your uh, perspective. Thank you very much. That's Jim Power, you, uh, economist uh, there, telling us, giving us his take on uh, the various issues facing the economy. We're going to take a break now and we're going to come back uh, with lots more interesting material on the bottom line between now and seven o'clock. This is KCLR. It is indeed. It's just after 24 minutes past uh, six o'clock. John Purcell with you on the bottom line, the programme for and about business and a, a date for your diary. Uh, always good to look ahead. I know we're not into April just yet, but on the 20th of April, uh, the Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce will hold their annual general meeting. It'll be in the Pembroke Hotel, Kilkenny. It'll kick off at one o'clock. Uh, always a good event to go to uh, if you're going to pick one meeting to go to of a Chamber of Commerce, the AGM. You'll get a 
good feel for everything that's going on. Now, uh, talking about a f- good feel, we're going to talk about uh, feeling good and being a healthy place to work and something that's very important for pe- all businesses and indeed for people in business. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by John Ryan, who's the global CEO of Healthy Place to Work. Good evening, John. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Now, you're all about healthy places to work and you've done uh, research with uh, Trinity College and they've got over 6,000 responses. What are you finding out from 6,000 people about health at work? Well, I suppose the big the big finding here is that uh, work has a big impact on your health, but also your health has a big impact on the workplace. So it's a a kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. And what's clear is that work for many people can actually be the worst part of their life. It can make them completely frustrated. It can stress them out. It can cause them to get ill. And in the worst case scenario, it can actually kill them. But on the other hand, it can also be the best part of your life. It can provide you with the resources you need to uh, live your life. Uh, It can give you purpose and meaning. It can allow you to flourish and thrive. So um, it's basically there's two sides of this coin. And what we're identifying is the things in workplaces that cause it to be a good thing and also cause it to be a bad thing and try to bring that information to organizations so that they can make sure that their workplace is actually um, causing people to be healthier rather than not. And how do you go about that uh, from a kind of nuts and bolts thing? You know, company listening to you and goes, yeah, I must actually start thinking about it. I realise the importance of health and well-being during COVID where we all distanced ourselves and worked from home and all that. We're back to quote-unquote normal now. I want to keep it going. I want to improve health and well-being. How do I go about it and how can a company like yours help? Yeah, I suppose first and foremost, it did become the number one issue for organisations during the the pandemic because it kind of had to. Um, It has tailed off a little bit because there's other issues that are coming on the agenda for leaders now. So it's obviously important, this research would tell us that it needs to get back up there top of the agenda for organisations. Has it Um, slipped a bit, do you think? Yeah, no, it has. It has uh, slipped a bit because obviously there's a huge amount of issues uh, that are affecting uh, organizations from a board level and from a CEO level, they've, you know, the, the inflation, as, as Jim was just talking about there, uh, cost living and the war in Ukraine and uh, resources like energy and the like. I mean, there's a lot of issues on people's agenda. But when you actually look at the performance of an organization, the biggest impact on that performance is actually your people. And when that goes wrong, as we can see in too many examples across the globe, um, you have big, big problems. And organisations have been suffering in terms of trying to attract and retain uh, people. But it's interesting, when we go into organisations and we ask them about their approach to workforce health, um, they kind of tell us that they're doing a lot of stuff. And, And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way by using the word stuff, but they are doing a lot of things. And when you ask them, why are they specifically doing those things, they find it difficult to answer that question. So they like to maybe do events. They have a very programmatic approach. Sometimes it sits with HR. And it's oftentimes about awareness building and the like. But unfortunately, what our view is, is that we're way past awareness building. Most people know what they should be doing. Uh, But in a lot of cases, they're not doing it. So the organizations that actually win in this space are the ones who actually see 
the health of their workforce as the biggest driver of sustainable organisational performance. So it has to kind of sit with the C-suite and the CEO has to take responsibility for this as being the biggest driver of performance. And this is about the culture of the organisation. This is about the behaviours that are accepted in that organisation. And, and only too recently through the Defence Forces report there, we've, we've seen when it goes wrong, it goes badly wrong in organisations. And that can have a huge negative effect on people's health. Yeah, now talk to me a bit about the yeah. company that maybe the chief executive or the general manager or whoever running it um, has 20 employees. They don't actually have a C-suite. They're running around yeah. kind of chasing their tail a lot of the time. They hear what you're saying and they know that it's important. How do they go about it? Yeah, well, I mean... From a stand and start, really, say. We're dealing with organisations who have 10 people up to organisations that have 300,000 people. So we, we get all, all sides of this. So, it, it, you know, in our case, we run a, a survey which actually identifies a certain amount of uh, statements that people respond to. And that brings back a lot of data to the organisation to let them understand where their people are, what their biggest issues are, and how can they respond to that. But if you've got five people or 10 people in your organisation, you can do the same because because you, you can see the model and methodology we use, you can actually sit down and have a one-to-one conversation with people to find out what is the biggest issue that's affecting them right now on a day-to-day basis. And these things aren't rocket science. I was talking to uh, the leader of one organization. Now, it is a big organization, DHL Express, uh, in Europe. And he was actually saying to me that the biggest thing he possibly could do for the people of that organization, based on the research, was provide food for their families. And this was providing a hot meal for their families at night was the biggest thing affecting them. That was the biggest worry their people had. That was causing them the greatest strain. Was it to, to get home in time to do it, to have the time no, to prepare no, or afford it? having the money. It oh, was having the money. having the money to afford it because there's a lot of people who are on very, very low wages in that organisation. Yeah. And that was the biggest issue for them. And even the, an organisation being able to use its purchasing power to actually purchase um, even groceries at yeah. a reduced rate and provide that to their people in their organisation. Those things mean an awful lot. So I like, I'd like people to think about this at a much more foundational and fundamental level of how you actually, you know, can um, provide a healthy environment for people to actually so, work in yeah. and show that the organisation is supporting them. So in 60 seconds, John, if someone likes the sound of what you're saying, what should they do and how can you help them? What's the well, first step? Uh, well, we've got a website, um, uh, healthyplacetowork.com. Go there. There's loads of resources and information that's free of charge anyway that we provide to people because we want to move the dial in this. This is our mission across the globe to do this. If they want to engage with us, we simply run a survey in the organisation and we use that data, we bring them on a tech platform which uh, provides them with all the data they need and we tell them what they're good at and the areas that they need to focus on and we give them benchmark data and the like if they want that. And this is about targeting the areas that are the biggest issues that will make the biggest performance difference to their organisation. Mm. Well, look, fascinating talking to you. And John, uh, we may talk to you again, or we'd like to talk to you again. Unfortunately, we're out of time. That's John Ryan, Global CEO for the Healthy Place to Work organisation. Thank you, John. 
Thanks a lot, John. Yeah, um, coming up, uh, just to think, uh, getting out and about in the fresh air is a good way of uh, health and well-being. And Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce and Carlow Chamber of Commerce both getting themselves ready for their golf classics. Uh, the Kilkenny one takes place on the 31st of May and the Carlow one takes place on the 14th of June. So it's getting to be that time of the year. Uh, do get out and about, but do, as John Ryan was saying there, uh, think of your workplace as a healthy place to work work and wanting to make it a healthy place to work along with environmentally friendly and sustainable and all that uh, kind of stuff. Now uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with a fascinating item which uh, is going to give you an opportunity to hear Patrick Joseph Brennan talk about his fantastically interesting business making knives. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. With thanks to the Carlo and Kilkenny Local Enterprise Offices for business financial supports and mentoring services. For more information, see localenterprise.ie. John Purcell with you on The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. Now, I've been at a lot of business events and launches over the years, but I was never at the launch of a knife uh, manufacturing workshop slash gallery and so on. So I went along with quite a bit of curiosity today and I met the man uh, behind the initiative who, along with Tammy Brennan, his wife, uh, have created Patrick Joseph. Uh, So I met and sat down after a lovely occasion with Patrick Joseph Brennan and I asked him to tell me about what brought him today to the launch of Patrick Joseph. So um, in 2010, I had a bad accident and I had to change my career. So I went into craft as a form of um, rehabilitation. I learned, um, I had a brain injury and I had to learn hand skills again. Um, so I started doing craft. I started off with uh, leather work and evolved into making knives. Um, I traveled the world. I went all over America and learned from some of the best knife makers in the world and then I was fortunate enough to go, manage to get into the DCI uh, goldsmithing and jewellery design course in Kilkenny. Uh, I studied there for two years and got my um, my degree in the uh, goldsmithing, and then I, I I was lucky enough to get uh, the opportunity to open a shop up here in the Castle Yard. And knife making, you know, many people, their experience of knives would just be in your commoner garden, kitchen, cutlery and so on. Tell us about the whole world of knife making. You described it earlier on as a golden age of knife making. Yes, so there's a show on the telly called Forged in Fire, which has a huge um, following all over the world. And... um, the, the craft of knife making has really come back now. Uh, it's a it's a billion dollar industry, and there's with the shows that I go to in the states and have thousands and thousands of uh, visitors every day from every kind of knife, from outdoor camping knives, um, hiking knives to culinary knives for cooking. Talk to us a bit about the various knives that you would produce. You mentioned uh, culinary knives for cooking. Um, describe one of those and what work goes into it. Yeah, I specialise in um, Japanese uh, techniques for, uh, for kitchen knives. So I, my, my objective is to make them as thin as possible, as strong as possible and as sharp as possible. Um, this, this, this makes the knife overall... Uh, perfect for uh, cooking with it's able to cut through foods and meats perfectly Uh, it doesn't have any kind of um, 
obstructions when cutting food. It doesn't damage the cells in the food, and it makes the food taste much better when when you're using a good sharp knife. So, is there a science behind that, or is that just kind of lore? Yeah, no. So, when you start cutting the cells of food, you, if you if you tear them, you immediately start the um, the uh, oxidization process in the food. So, what you want to do is sever the cells in the food, and uh, it makes the food taste better and last longer on the plate. Especially when they're doing a lot of people are eating a lot of Japanese cut. Uh, sushi and uh, vegetarian options in food so it's really required for that kind of cooking styles nowadays. And talk to us about typical price range of a high-end culinary knife, you know, that a, that a, a Michelin star chef may wish to use for example. Yeah, so um, knives can range from probably there's about 40 hours of work in them and you could be looking anywhere from seven to eight hundred pounds for a high-end high-performance um, Japanese chef knife and uh, culinary knives and so on are, are one area but uh, you know looking today around your workshop you, every knife tells a story tell us about the Texas toothpick yeah, so the Texas toothpick is used by Sylvester Stallone in the film The Expendables. Um, I learned from um, a living legend in America called Gil Hibben, who was who was the Klingon armorer, and he made all the knives for Sylvester Stallone and Hollywood. So he was my first teacher. Um, so I have some knives that I made with him. I have the knife from Jason Statham used in The Expendables film and Sylvester Stallone's knife, which was uh, used in The Expendables as well. Now, you said you trained uh, with Crafts Council of Ireland and learned jewellery skills. Um, you've incorporated or are beginning to uh, incorporate some of those jewellery-making skills into your, into your knife-making craft. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so um, I've just come back from Texas where I developed a knife for the show there, which got me into the Knife Makers Guild as a voting member, uh, which is an extreme privilege. I think it's one of like 200 knife makers in the world. Um, so the knife that I made was solid gold a handle with two carats of diamonds in the handle, and it has 6,000-year-old bog U. Um, wood in the, in the handle uh, itself uh, the, like without doing the DCI course and learning all them embellishments at, in the goldsmithing course there's no way I could have done that knife and what kind of money I'm nearly afraid to ask but what would the price tag on something like that be uh, that knife is currently 40,000 Wow, and uh, is there much of a market for that, is really uh, and truly in these days, or, or is it a, a limited number of high-end collectors? Yeah, no, that, that knife's sold now, so, yeah, so I've got a commission to make another one, so it's wow. quite well, yeah. So business is good for the, the high-end knife making? Yeah, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a, market, a massive market for the art knife in the art knife world, so there's uh, collectors out there that want something unique and bespoke and one-off. The blade is one aspect, but uh, also the handle and the scabbards. Uh, you have a range of scabbards uh, on display. Um, for people who don't know, those are the leather sheets that the knife is, is held in. And you make those yourself too? Yeah. I, I went, when I went to the States, I learned from another master uh, smith called Joe Kiesler, and he t taught me how to make um, handmade leather sheets from, from raw material with hand tooling and uh, dyeing leather, how to dye the leather and finish the leather and to form the leather around the blades correctly. Mm -hmm. So they're all, they're all hand, everything's handmade with the finest of uh, Italian leather. A proud day for you uh, today. We could see how much it meant. Uh, the mayor of Kilkenny spoke.
spoke very warmly. Um, uh, what does today mean to you? Uh, you know, you know, putting your name above the door and welcoming members of the public in. Reinventing yourself after uh, serious injuries and accidents and stuff can be a long road. So. Um, yes, big day, big day for me, and uh, hopefully uh, many more to come. A lot of people have helped you get to this day. Um, setting up a business, having a passion for craft is one thing, but actually setting up the business is a, is a different thing. Tell us about that and who helped you along the way. Yes, yeah, so Leo, uh, Local Enterprise Board and Enterprise Island and... Um, uh, the DCI and also uh, the RDS they, they've all helped in my journey and ha- helped me with mentorship and funding and with, without them I wouldn't be able anywhere near where I am today so it's, uh, I can't thank them enough for all their help and support Now retail is all about the experience and you're starting to offer uh, re- or, you know, knife making experiences so if someone's out there and they're liking the sound of, of you know forged in fire there's now an opportunity whether they're in Kilkenny or Carlow or Threat to Southeast to do that. Tell us about what you're offering there. So, yeah, you can come out to the Forge and um, it's a two-day course where you can come and make a knife from scratch uh, by hand all the way through to final finish and take it home with you and you'll have a high-performance kitchen knife as good as I make, yeah. Fantastic. Where do you hope to bring the business from here now? You've opened your first uh, retail outlet and and, and showroom. What next? Um, So, I'm going to like concentrate on my art knives and get those, uh, hopefully some more galleries and stuff around the world and then I want to um, develop my um, my, my uh, jewellery range and my knife range uh, and design something special that people can use around Ireland for camping and cooking. Best of luck to Patrick Joseph Brennan and uh, also to uh, Tammy there. Uh, what a fascinating story and I really enjoyed dropping down there. You can find out more about uh, that business, Patrick Joseph, uh, by just searching online. Uh, or you can drop into the showroom in Castle Yard in Kilkenny, just at the back of the Design Centre. Lovely place to take a wander around. We're going to turn to a Carlo business next, Pro Tray, and they scooped the Carlo Digital Awards uh, during the week. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Tony Kelly, who's a director at Pro Trade, a uh, well-known man in the electrical trade and also a bit of an inventor. Good evening, Tony. Hi, good evening, John. How are things? Very well, and yourself. Now, I said in the intro to the show, you left school at about 17 uh, and a week later you started on the on the uh, uh, electrician route. Uh, many people will know you from Tony Kelly Electrical Services. You work with a lot of big projects. Uh, just tell us about that. Before we get to the pro trade bit, tell us about, uh, you know, the Tony Kelly Electrical yeah, Services. Yeah, again, as you said, the journey started straight after straight after my leaving starts when I was lucky enough to uh, start with a local electrician, Joe Clancy. So he started me off into the electrical trades. And from that, I followed on in my third year of my apprenticeship and um, started traveling to Dublin and worked for the uh, top company, Mercury, Mercury Engineering, who are a worldwide company now. Yeah. Um, so I worked with them, completed uh, my qualifications with uh, Mercury Engineering, and I've worked on a lot of the top projects then uh, throughout Dublin. Uh, a lot of the data center kind of projects for uh, private clients like Microsoft, Facebook, um, you know, large scale industrial and commercial projects. What's it like working on something like that? It's not kind of first fix where you're going in and putting uh, shaver units over a, a, a sink no, or three point plugs. Talk to us about it. Well, it's a completely different ball game than your residential um, 
kind of houses industry. So like the commercial industry, the first thing to go in would be the electrical containment, which inspired us on the route of the Pro Trade tools. But as a young guy in the, in that game, you're kind of taken back and overwhelmed by the size of these projects. Like they're literally multi-story. But from my understanding of it, if you're going to data centre, yeah. Yeah, they're multi-million euro projects. Like you're you're going to be on these projects for the best part of probably two years. You know, that's how much construction, even on the electrical side, uh, is involved in these large-scale projects. Yeah, now you mentioned the phrase there, electrical containment being one of the first things. Break that down into kind of uh, something that I can understand. So even if you go into your your local shopping centre car park and look above your head, you will have uh, metal containment, which gives us our cableways and cable trays. It gives us a route to run our electrical supplies to to all our lighting services Ah. and all our distribution boards, so... Um, so it's, it's kind of like trays, yeah. So there must yeah, be literally it's, it's, miles and miles of this miles stuff around the place. Kilometres, we on a large-scale uh, office block um, for Hegarty's in, in the city centre. It's called Salesforce Tower. There was over 1,200 metres of metal containment for every floor, nine floors. For every floor? For every floor. So 1.2 kilometres of metal containment by nine floors in a high-rise office block, so... Uh, by my maths, that's somewhere between 11 and 12 kilometres of cables. That's it, yeah. Yeah. So you're doing this, um, presumably you're commuting up and down uh, from Carlo and, and yeah, yeah. a so light bulb leave starts house, going leave, off. Leave, leave the house every morning at 5am and we start work at 7 every morning. So that gives me the best best part of an hour and a half to two hours uh, with the light bulb going off every morning and I'm constantly thinking and innovating and how I, I can improve the business or grow the business. That's my office and travelling to and from work, I get that time to uh, really brainstorm and think of how to grow things. You so know? we'll talk about the pro tray in a minute, but tell us some of the ones that didn't make it past your quality control, that didn't make it past Newlands Cross, say, for example. What kind of things would you be thinking? You're an inventive kind of character, so. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of things we would... I, I, routes I was thinking about going in the electrical industry because it's so vast and wide that you can specialise in so many different areas but um, the tool part of it was always a kind of an inspiration of how we can improve things you know mm. uh, Tell us then briefly about what ProTray is and the tool that you've invented So um, the, the roofing bolt is a commonly used uh, bolt for bolting down all of this containment it's always it, it's it's used in 90% of the projects. Um, there'll be thousands of bolts will go in to hold down this electrical containment. And that's, that's specifically the M6 roofing bolt, hmm. which is around since the 60s or 70s um, would have been always used on your corrugated farmer sheeting roofs. Um, and from there, then it's, it's grown into our industry. But there's never been a specific driver to drive this bolt. We've always used a flat screwdriver to drive it, which is it's too slow. And I said, look, we need to come up with an idea um, of a better driving system for it, which was... Which As in, uh, like, how to stick it into the tray and fix it, is that it? Yeah, how to fix it down. So uh, we sat down on the CAD drawings and came up with the initial prototype so that it fits the head of the roofing bolt. Like, every other bolt and screw out there has, you know, you have a flat head, a Phillips head, mm. an Allen key. But the roofing bolt, a bolt that's around since the 60s, has never had a specific driver for the shape to fit the top of that bolt. So you're... Uh, in jobs where they may be like the, the the job you described earlier on which is probably about 11 or 12 kilometres of these things probably tens of thousands of these M6 roofing bolts in it tens and, of thousands of bolts yeah. yeah and nobody has ever thought of 
kind of looked at a thing and went, there must be yeah. a better way. We, we just done a simple moulding of the boat and uh, went from there, from design to concept to prototype to manufacture, and uh, we've been granted the patent on that product. So specifically from the inventor stage, which I designed back in 2015, and here we are now, we finally got to market. Um, kind of when I done the initial concept design and realised the cost that was involved in bringing something like this to to the market again I wasn't educated enough and mm. didn't know how to how to go about it so I approached the local enterprise board and we went on some some training programs with the local enterprise board which educated me into how to start a business and how to get the kind of products out to the market yeah so, well look we might uh, we're going to take a break and we might come back and talk in some more detail about how you bring uh, you know um, they said the best inventions are the simple ones you spotted something, a, a glaring gap and brought it to market. We'll talk more about that. You're listening after the break. Uh, you're listening to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. That's Tony Kelly on the line, director of Pro Trade. He had a brilliant idea. He's patented it. He's won his first award. We're going to talk about how he can take it to the next level. Don't go away. It's just nine and a half minutes away from seven. Lots more to come. With John Purcell, The Bottom Line on KCLR. With thanks to the Carlo and Kilkenny local enterprise offices for business, financial supports and mentoring services. For more information, see localenterprise.ie. John Purcell with you for the next seven and a half minutes on The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. I'm joined on the line by Tony Kelly, uh, inventor of a solution for something that had been there for years and years, which was people were kind of making up a solution to fixing the M6 roofing bolt. Uh, Tony, can you just tell me what pushed you um, to make a prototype and all that? You know, i.e. going from this is a great idea to actually taking action about it. Well, again, working as a supervisor on these uh, electrical projects, we saw that there was uh, unstable unstable and incomplete installations. So we said, look, there has to be an easier way. Let's get a prototype done. Um, So we touched base with a a company called Box Clever in City West. So they take our initial concept design all the way to prod- all the way to prototype yeah and um what do you think the potential is for this uh invention yeah, so of yours enough, we, we we are just after on the way back down here from um two busy days at an electrical trade show called electex that was in belfast in the titanic center so we've touched base with a couple of uk contacts which is going to see our profile hitting the UK market over the next couple of weeks. So we've made some very good contacts on that. The trade shows have been very beneficial in the growth of ProTrade. Yeah, and how are people reacting to the idea? Presumably people are saying, why did nobody think of this before? Yeah, so like we've, we, exactly, that's exactly the feedback we got from um, some of the patrons coming through at the trade show. Some of them came specifically to the trade show because they had seen our footage that we have on social media, on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. Um, you know, how has somebody never thought of this before? We're installing this for years and here we are. This is the final solution. So um, we had great sales over the last two days. So I'm sure, uh, you know, ProTray is now becoming a household name in the electrical industry, which is great for us. Yeah. And when winning the awards last week is going to push us right right, right up there, you know? Yeah, that's the Carlo Digital Awards where you walked away with the with the top award. That must be good. Tell us how you found the transition from, like you say, kind of hands-on supervision of specific projects to, like, standing for two days at a trade show, uh, making sales pitches and, and doing all that sort of stuff. Has that been hard? 
Yeah, well, like it is. It's a different ball game. Um, going from uh, running the guys on site to going into into sales, but again, would, my name would be familiar in the industry, and we come across a lot of the familiar faces and contacts in that. So it's you know, look, I think if you know what you're talking about and you're trying to sell it, I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about the product, and I believe in it that much that it, it becomes an easy sell for me. You know. What next? Um, have you got more uh, inventions on the boiler? Where are you going to go? Yeah, so we just launched a new safety product at the trade show over the last two days. It's uh, for MEWPs, which is a mobile elevated platform. It's your scissors lift that we would normally use on site for working at heights. Yeah. So this is a, it's a storage tool tray. It will be found on our website. Um, from next week onwards, so it's a, it's a safety safety tool tray. So. Again, I feel passionate about it. It's going to be something that is going to grow right in the industry. And we got great feedback at the trade show on yeah. that product. Well, you listen, know, just, launching the, just launching the product and getting the feedback we did over the last two days is phenomenal, you know? Yeah. You mentioned your website. Just give us the address there, Tony, because I'm sure people will be interested in having a look. Oh, yeah. You can find a list of our stockists on our website and obviously our company profile on www.pro-tray.ie. Pro-tray.ie. Well, Tony, congratulations on the award. Congratulations on the idea. And we look forward to hearing about more awards, more products and so on. Thanks for joining us on The Bottom Line. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us. That was uh, Tony Kelly uh, there and a great story. Something tells me that uh, Tony is going to be coming up with a lot more inventions. And they sound to me like they're good inventions because they're kind of sensible ones um, and they're ones that people are saying why did nobody think of that before which seems to me to be the mark of a good invention unfortunately that's all we've got time for this week we're going to leave it there uh, remember any comments uh, or suggestions email the bottom line at caseylaura96fm.com thanks to all the guests Jim Power, John Ryan Patrick Joseph Brennan and Tony Kelly thanks to Deirdre Drummy who produces the show but thanks most of all to you for listening until next Thursday we'll be back just after the news at 6 Take care, keep safe, and keep the faith. This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. With thanks to the Carlo and Kilkenny Local Enterprise Offices for business financial supports and mentoring services. For more information, see localenterprise.ie.